0: Off the ball.
1: It's not okay for him to be fine in a test match like that. It's a fulcrum position where everything runs through 9 and 10. You don't get to be fine in, in matches like that where
2: you start. Subscribe to the rugby stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Everglade shave Magnificent Mo. I'm delighted to so say Jonathan Wilson is with us. Jonathan, good morning to you. How are you? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks. How are you? Um, I'm very good. It's uh, it's been a wild start to the World Cup. Um, I, before we talk about the football, can I just get your impression of what kind of uh, impact the politics that's going on at the moment, the stuff at the armband, um, the migrant rights workers, the controversy, the just that whole kind of sense of it not being a particularly well-oiled machine at the moment. What's your sense of the impact that that's having? Um, globally on people's perceptions of this and, and locally on the ground there? Well, I,
1: I you know, it's, it clearly dominates everything. Uh, I mean, I think there's two slightly separate but related issues there. So I think it is very much a European concern, the workers' rights, gay rights, women's rights. Um, you know, I, I don't think uh, South American and African journalists seem particularly bothered by that. I saw the head of the uh, Japanese FA came out yesterday and said, oh, we shouldn't be talking about this. Um, but it, you sort of assume or I sort of assumed That there was a danger That when the football started The talking about the politics Would stop And I, and I sort of You know You go into a tournament uh, As a journalist You sort of think Well what are the things I've got to keep my eye on what, what can I not get distracted by And I was sort of saying You've got to always remember What the actual story is here Well there's been no problem Doing that um, the, the, yeah, I think FIFA made The armband thing Much bigger than it needed to be I mean it's, it's a ludicrous Um prohibition they've they put in place, given that it doesn't even fall under the remit of their ban on on um, political symbols. In that, the Qatar captain wore a pro-Palestine armband on, on Sunday. So how being pro-Palestine is, is not political, but showing support for um, the LGBT community in a very, very sort of diluted way, how that somehow is in breach and a very overtly political statement isn't. Whatever you think of the merits of those causes just makes no sense. Um, but I think that's something that we're, we're finding uh, with everything here, that that there is a there is an image and the reality doesn't really bear that out. And you've seen that in, in in loads of different ways. So, I mean, it's a very minor thing, but the attendance figures for every game so far have been bigger than the capacity of the stadiums. So you know, somebody's queried that and FIFA have now sent me a message going, oh, you know, you know what, we we got the capacities wrong. Actually, all the stadiums are bigger than we said. Sorry about that. And it's nonsense. You know, I was in a, I was at Senegal Netherlands yesterday, a 40,000 capacity stadium. Uh, I would say maybe 75% of the seats were filled and yet the attendance was given as 41,000. It was just nonsense. So if you can't trust the numbers for, for how many people are in the game, well, of course you can't trust the numbers for how many people have died building these stadiums. So... Yeah, it's been a very odd experience. There's this whole question of uh, the fans you see in the stadiums, are they actually fans? Um, Pretty sure the Dutch and the uh, Senegalese I saw yesterday were. I'm pretty sure the Ecuadorians on Sunday were. But there's all kinds of stories that that group of Qatar fans behind the goal, the ones who actually stayed till the end and made themselves very conspicuous by doing so, that a load of them were shipped in from Lebanon. So there's this sort of sense of, of unreality and, and then there's a story. I mean, look, I, I have to say now that I have not confirmed this. I don't even know how to begin to confirm this. But there's a was a story yesterday that um, the sort of white security fences that you know the, the very standard security fences you see whenever there's a crowd, yeah, you know, be that in Europe, be it in Africa, be it in America, wherever. That apparently the Emir was driving past them last week and decided he didn't like how they looked, and so now a load of them are being replaced by. You know that sort of—I don't know what it is. It's sort of infinity symbol. It's the the mascot of it, of a logo of a tournament. The sort of white band uh, that, that um, these white security uh, barriers are being replaced by sort of gold versions of that, with gold ropes between them. So the stadium yesterday, Altamira, where the Netherlands Senegal uh, game was, a load of those barriers outside the media centre had changed from the white ones to the gold ones. And yeah, you, know, you just sort of think, well, what, what what an absurd way of running a tournament what's an absurd way of running a country where the whim of one man can can change that at a you know, handful of days' notice.
2: Yeah, and it seems like uh, FIFA are happy to just do what they're told. The, uh, it, uh, initially, um, the beer thing, I was like, well, you know, it's, it's not that unusual that there's no beer in stadiums, really, because uh, like, I've been to loads of games where if you do buy a beer, it's non-alcoholic. Um, but it's just when you put that together with everything else that is changing at the last minute, you realise, OK, what's actually happening here is that what Qatar said and what they're doing are different, but yeah. FIFA are doing whatever Qatar says.
1: Yeah, that, that's exactly it. I mean, I think the beer is, is to an extent, it's a red herring, right? I mean, I totally understand if you're you know from a Qatari family and you want to go to games in your World Cup and you've suddenly got the prospect of people being drunk next to you, people holding beers next to you. I get that you, you know, that's not part of your culture. That makes you feel very uncomfortable. And I, I completely support the right of countries to say, we do not want alcohol, we will not have it in our tournament. That is entirely their right. But they had 12 years to sort that out. It shouldn't be done 48 hours before the tournament. And there's going to be, presumably, there's going to be a compensation that has to be paid to Budweiser as a, as a FIFA sponsor. Uh, I guess Qatar maybe pay that, and they just sort of think, well... What's another 10, 20, 30, 40 million dollars on top of the 250 billion or whatever it is they've already spent? But you're right. What, what, what's concerning about that is it's it's part of this pattern of, oh, yeah, it's, it's not in June, July, it's in November, December. Oh, we're not actually starting on the 21st of November, we're starting on the 20th of November. Um, and, and yeah, the, we're not having these white security barriers, we're having these goals. It, it, it just sort of feels like FIFA have have either lost control of the tournament or don't actually care that they're not in control of the tournament. And I think that's why Infantino is such a sort of I, 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 you know, I don't know if he's if he's just weak. I don't know if he you know if, if something else is going on. But he, he seems entirely happy to to let himself be governed by Qatar. And in that sense I think it's a little bit dis- he was happily sitting between the Emir and Ahmed bin Salman, the, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, who of course are bidding or probably going to bid for the two thousand
2: thirty World Cup. Yeah, it's uh, only to be expected I suspect that um, where this is the start of something as opposed to the end of something particularly when so much money is at stake Can we talk about a little bit about the football? What did you make of um, the team selection yesterday from Gareth Southgate and is that now a pattern or is this how he plays against teams he expects to have more of the ball he plays with four at the back and the five at the back will come back in the round of the last 16 against a good team
1: Yeah, I think it's the latter I've been slightly surprised by all the discussion around this I think it's been pretty clear Right, since before the Euros, that Southgate's model is England play a back
2: four. Oh, we've lost you there. We've lost the sound on you there, Jonathan. We'll, we'll get you. We'll get you right back. We'll just um, we'll uh, just take that offline and see if we can reestablish the sounds. They're
0: trying to get into Kev's room. and They're trying to cut Jonathan's mic. <laughs>
2: um,
0: yeah, it's mad. Like the, the more you hear Jonas over there talking about. Situation, you're just like this is this is bizarre, and and the capacity thing is, was one of the stranger ones. <clears throat> the fact that FIFA can now turn around and say, "Oh no, that's that's actually not the capacity of the stadium." Very very strange. Um, so yeah, there, there just seems to be more and more stories out each day that you're just like, "This is this is fairly fairly crazy stuff." Um, but yeah, mad mad to hear the stories in the ground.
2: <clears throat> what did you think of um, Phil Foden I'm starting?
0: Uh, like I before the game, you're like, "This is mad." He's one of their, their best players, if not their, their best player, um, and yet. When you see Saka, and if it was Saka that started instead of him, then you're you're like, well, Saka completely, uh, you know, vindified his, uh, his position. You know, he he was brilliant yesterday, and uh, the, maybe Foden is being used off the bench. Maybe that's a, a purposeful ploy, but um,
2: yeah, he's uh, he, he's certainly uh, not a bad player to have to come on uh, off the bench for England. Because um, there was some suggestion that this was going to be his tournament, where he he becomes the the Gaza style figure, uh, Ally Italian ninety. Maybe mm. um, I mean, he's just maybe there was something happened in training so Jonathan we're just having uh, an interlude here a discussion around Phil Foden and him not starting Um, you know tournaments don't always start with the team that finishes them, but it was interesting that he didn't get the nod for the game
1: Yes in in some ways I mean I think when you play Kane you want at least one and preferably two players who will run beyond him which you get with Sterling and Saka Um, so I, I get the logic of that then I guess it becomes a question of do you play Foden do you play Mount and Foden look, I think Foden is an absolutely brilliant footballer, but he hasn't played particularly well for England for well ever, really. Um and I think that might just be an issue of, of you know Manchester City is such an idiosyncratic team that the shift from that to a totally different system in international football, maybe that is different is, is, is difficult for him. And you know, Mason Mount Every coach who's ever worked with him says he's tactically he's an absolute genius, that he he understands the, the shape of the game on the pitch. And I think certainly the last sort of month, six weeks, he's been in pretty good form. So I it didn't I wasn't particularly surprised by that that it was Mount Overfoden. And I, I think it's difficult to play the two of them in in the same England team if you've got Kane there. I know um, Borussia
0: Dortmund had, had refused to approve any price tag for Jude Bellingham Jonathan before the World Cup and you're hearing the rumours of Liverpool and Real Madrid coming in next year you can kind of see why they've done that now because this could be this could be the breakout tournament for Bellingham
1: Yeah I mean we knew he was, he was good but obviously if you have a good World Cup then, then that increases price tag massively I mean to, to play as well as that with that level of maturity at, at 19 <coughs> so <sorry>, excuse me <coughs> at 19 is, is extraordinary and, and you know that 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 already I think is one of the the
2: great English World Cup debuts. I hadn't quite realised that he can literally do every, <laughs> everything. You know, <laughs> he, he he could play in any position um, in the midfield area, and you'd be very confident of having a major impact on the game. It's um, it's kind of a unique skill set at this stage.
1: Yeah, it is, and it's hugely useful to England because I mean, as we were saying when I, when we lost the connection before, uh, I think England will go back to a back three against teams where they, they expect the possession to be more contested. Um, and the question then was, well, you want Declan Rice in there. Who plays alongside him? Calvin Phillips did very, very well at the Euros. His range of passing is, is very good. He gets the ball forward quickly, which I think England at times lack if they play Jordan Henderson there. Uh, but obviously his fitness is is a big question, just, you know, just coming back from injury. Whereas Bellingham can, can drop back and do that and also give you a little bit more thrust. You know, he, he's... He's developed that, that sort of Frank Lampard ability to to arrive late in the box. He's clearly a very gifted header of the ball, which I have to say I didn't particularly realise before. So you know, he, he yeah, he gives you everything. And if it does become two central midfielders, as as I think it will, uh, then th- then that's a huge positive to have a player with with that that range of, of attributes. Was it essentially the dream result, Jonathan, for, for Southgate? Because in the
0: end, really really good performance, but also conceding the two goals, kind of. Temper's expectations a little bit gives them something to to improve on and, and focus on in a negative sense in the, in the you know in the pre-match press conference ahead of the next game.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, the important thing was a to win, and b I think because there was that sort of sense of negativity, that sense of this thing had stagnated. To win in a way that, that excites people, you know, nobody can say now. Oh, you know, Southgate's got to unleash him. Yeah, you know, they they've shown in this sort of slightly unleashed, sorry, slightly leashed way. They, they are perfectly capable of scoring goals that they do have that incisiveness so would I mean probably ideally you'd have liked Kane to score but it doesn't really matter um, so yeah I mean I, I think almost as well you know the fact that they concede the penalty which is I think it is a penalty but it, it, it's a little bit harsh and certainly you compare that to the penalty England didn't get early on when Maguire was wrestled to the ground so sort I of think well if you're going to have two of those decisions go against you you might as well do it in the game you're winning 6-1 anyway uh, so get a bit of bad luck out of the way um, I, yeah I, I can't really see how it could have gone much better and as you say with that slight negative that uh, we've got to be a bit careful here we did concede two we can't be going about conceding that kind of chance to well maybe Wales the USA but certainly
2: later on in the competition, seeing them go through. I know, you know, we were, again, before the the line went down, we were talking about how that's been the pattern since before the Euros, the, the three-man central defence comes in against the, the better teams. Is there any possibility that actually the team is maturing to a point where they don't need that?
1: Um, I mean, possibly. I, I, I just I, I sort of go back to something Southgate said at the beginning of September before those two Nations League games, where he suggested that he'd allowed himself to be deflected in the summer, in those four games in June, uh, to go away from his principles. And he was so sort of adamant, you know, that was a wake-up call for him, that he's got to stick to what he believes in. And I, I think he believes this is the pattern. You know, Southgate's not a spontaneous man. He's somebody who believes in research. He believes in thorough preparation. Um, I mean, if I England beat USA and Wales by four or five in both games, which I'm sure will not happen... Maybe he does rethink that, but I'm pretty sure that that it'll be the back three when they come up against the Netherlands or France or, or whoever happens to be the first the first team who are really going to challenge him in midfield.
2: And um, I, I, look, I understand all the the history on that side. I wonder, does Bellingham being so good give him the opportunity to not do that?
1: Well, possibly. I mean, it might become a case of he wants to get Bellingham in there because I think, I think this happens at World Cups. You get players who who suddenly hit a hot streak and you know it happened to an extent for England with uh, with, with um Trevor Sinclair in two thousand two, a player of you know of, of a good player but no by no means a great player, but he had a great World Cup. That for, for that month period, players suddenly hit a hot streak and it looks like Bellingham maybe is hitting one. So you've got to sort of I never think you should build a team around a player. Um I mean, maybe if you're a smaller nation who only has one great player, you know, Liberia in the days of George then obviously you do. But if you're in England, then, then then you shouldn't do that. But if you've got a player on a hard streak like that, you want to do everything you can to facilitate that. And maybe it becomes a question of, we want to get him in, uh, but we don't want to give him too much defensive responsibility when he's, he's looking so sharp and so good at getting forward into the box. Do you then play him in midfield with... Um, uh, with Calvin Phillips as, as well as Rice uh, and, and keep the back four, but I still think Southgate will go back to what he planned several weeks ago because that, that's who Southgate is and that's what the way his mind works. Sorry, I know Jonathan, we touched on the, the off pitch matters there uh, at the start, but
0: just specifically on the one love armband um, issue and, and like, do you, do you think Harry Kane was weak? yesterday in not in not stepping up and we were kind of sitting and waiting and seeing even though the the association's uh, announced pre-game that they weren't going to allow captains to wear the armband you know you, you kind of waited to see if there was going to going to be a rogue captain and and Ken could have been one of those like it seemed like a, a real moment where there was an opportunity to do something fairly big yesterday
1: yeah i mean he could have done but i think it's slightly unfair to to expect him to to do that i mean you know it, it's he 's not got, just got a responsibility to himself he 's got a responsibility to to England to his teammates to the squad to uh, to the nation for you know for one of a, a slightly less ridiculous term. What if he did get a you know a, a second booking either in the game and suddenly England lose to Iran or he gets a second booking in the last sixteen he misses the quarterfinal and and then suddenly England's chances of getting through are significantly diminished for what is to be honest a fairly diluted futile gesture. I th- you know, Harry Kane is not the villain here. Uh, I think the FA maybe could have been stronger, what I would like to have seen. And, you know, I accept this was never, ever going to happen. But those seven European federations could have said, all right, you know, book him. And as soon as you book him, we walk out and we don't play this tournament and we'll take whatever financial punishment you throw at us. And if seven of them do it, if the Dutch pull out, the Germans pull out, and England pull out, then then, then that's a, a, a you know, major problem for FIFA. Um but that needed solidarity and unity between those seven, and and, and clearly that didn't happen. Um, Maybe Gareth Southgate could have won the armband. I think that would have been a way around it. It doesn't really matter if your manager gets booked. Um, But I I just sort of feel with this tournament that it's so easy to get distracted and think, oh, well, Harry Kane could have done this, or the FA could have done this. No, FIFA have done this. It's FIFA the villains here. If you want to look at villains, it's FIFA, it's Qatar... And if you want to even pick somebody uh, you know, some sort of an in English player who's at fault, it's David Beckham sitting there having taken his hundred and fifty million dollars for to promote a terrible regime.
2: Yeah, I, I do wonder if it's if it's finished, if um if somebody somewhere might make uh make a stand. I, I hope that what the Iranian team did yesterday inspires somebody else to score a goal at the end of the game, whip out the armband, put it on, take the booking and be like, Yeah, so what what are you gonna do to me? So anybody so just to... Make a stand at this point, but as as add like here's the thing.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, sorry, I, I think that I think those two gestures are slightly different. The Iran's is directed back in their own country, and it, I, I think there's a genuine possibility that could inspire, or, or you know, provide some kind of solace or consolidation or, or you know, consolation to 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 protesters there. I, d- I just don't know what you achieve by wearing if you're Harry Kane by wearing an armband. What does it do? It it slightly annoys the Qataris. So what? It's not going to change anything. Whereas the Iranian gesture, I think, actually genuinely can have an impact on the ground
2: I think I, I, I would broadly agree the one thing I would say is though that if um, if you are from the community who uh, is LGBTQ plus then having somebody stand up for you in the face of the might of the Qataris and the acquiescence of FIFA might actually mean something uh, you know sure but I just
1: think there's better ways of doing that
2: than an armband. there probably are I mean there are and that's the, I think what the weird part about all this is that they somehow managed to turn this armband, which is like the most weak, watered down form of of um, alliance that we've really ever seen, you know? Like it's kind of like the Lance Armstrong, Livestrong thing, like except the modern day version of it. Like it ultimately doesn't matter, it doesn't achieve anything. But then FIFA turned it into something. Yeah. Which is, I, again, oh, I
1: mean, you know, I hadn't even noticed the guitar captain was wearing a, a pro Palestine armband until. This armband thing came up, and then it was pointed out to me. And so, you know, the, the, the double standards, and the fact, I just didn't even notice. And I, I suspect, yeah, people in, in the Seven Nations would have noticed. Um, and and I think a lot of Qataris would probably not really have known what was going on.
2: Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, as you said, the, your... Um preoccupation at the start was to like, how do do I make sure that the the main story remains the main story and and in focus? It looks like it's not going to go away. It looks like actually what has happened here is um, a little bit of the the strident effect where people are going to be talking about it. You know, I see um, there are reports of uh, rich, educated uh, Qataris now kind of turning on the whole notion of why why do we spend all this money to become an international laughing stock? So maybe it has some long-term impact in... Uh, the geopolitical understanding of Qatar and uh, the the general region. I d- I don't know what the what you think the outcome of all this is going to be. Yeah,
1: I, I mean it's something that's fascinated me for a while. That that you know, when 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 this sort of began in, in a football context, and you, you can pick prior examples, but it's sort of really this phase of, of, of sports washing uh, sort of begins. Uh, with the, the Abu Dhabi takeover of City and then the Qatari takeover of PSG. And I think back then, we were sort of a little bit, and I say we as a, as a sort of media and as a, as a sort of football culture, we were a little bit naive about it. We didn't really understand what was going on. That you know, City went from Taxa well, he who is sort of slightly odd uh, Thai politician slash uh, millionaire, I think, I don't think he was a billionaire. Um, don't really understand that. And then some other people have come in and the, the full impact of it i don't think we we fully had absorbed But then of course after a decade of that when when the saudis buy newcastle suddenly we know the questions to ask we know we know the places to look uh we know what it's about and i i wonder if uh, as our response to sports washing becomes more mature and more nuanced and, and begins to evolve then maybe it, it does have diminishing returns um and I get I, the, the. I mean, the problem with saying this is I don't fully know. I don't. I, I don't feel entirely comfortable. I've grasped what Qatar wants out of this. I, I get it's about um, publicising their nation so that they they don't become sort of some minnow that the Saudis can just sort of gobble up, uh, or or some other regional power. Um, but in terms of the reputation of their own country, like you know, I, twelve years ago I didn't give a second thought to migrant workers' rights in Qatar or, or LGBT rights in Qatar, whereas now I feel like I'm thinking about and writing about it every day. Um, and so from a state where I had a pretty neutral view, I've now got a pretty negative view. Um, and I, I, I don't – does that matter? I don't know. Maybe maybe sort of unveiling yourself into the international community more, uh, you know, as the Qataris have done, maybe that's what matters. And, you know, you, you kind of, this goes way beyond football. It was a huge uh, air base in Qatar – where where the the US regional um, air force is based, where where Britain has planes, um, so football is part of a much bigger picture of, of Qatar using the, the the money from the gas to sort of cement their position on the world stage. They they're not there just to be taken over by by regional power, as has happened to them throughout their history. So I, I sort of I still feel uncomfortable about saying I'm definitive about exactly what this is all about. yeah. But I think what we can say is, at the moment, this, in the, certainly in the short term, this is pretty bad for the reputation of Qatar, not least because the whole tournament just feels so weird. And a lot of stuff, to be honest, doesn't really work. Like the Wi-Fi doesn't really... And this is a journalist complaint, nobody cares about this. But the Wi-Fi doesn't work. The media shuttles don't really work. There is no sort of comprehension of you know, how to run a football tournament. It's staggeringly difficult here to watch football Yeah, you'd think that, you know, I've been to a couple of nations where clearly it's about promoting the nation. You go to Equatorial Guinea or Gabon during a couple of nations they're hosting, it's on telly all the time, you know, 24-7, there's reruns of games, there's the live games, there's build-ups of games. Here, we're getting kicked out of media centres, you know, an hour and a half, two hours after the final whistle, so you can't watch the next game. Uh, Being in sports is not being shown, you know, they've got the local rights. It's not being shown in lots of the apartment blocks and lots of the hotels so, actually, watching the tournament, this tournament they spent two hundred fifty billion dollars on, is incredibly difficult. You sort of well, you know, that's where's the joined up thinking there?
2: Who, who are they actually trying to show this to? I did see somebody make the point that actually the sports-washing element of it is far less important to them than that uh, local geopolitics, the point you made about Saudi Arabia gobbling them up, and that ultimately they don't really care if we think that they're um, slightly dodgy when it comes to women's rights and gay rights and or workers' rights. They don't care about that. What they do care about is how they're perceived by the United Arab, Arab Emirates and how mm. uh, they're perceived... When
1: no, they- I do wonder on this what the longer-term impact for FIFA will be. Um... Because you know, saw Infantino with with Mohammed bin Salman um, on Sunday, and I think he's playing a very dangerous game here. That, that I, I sort of am assuming that Infantino's motives here are partly weakness and he's just being manipulated by stronger forces. Partly, he just wants to secure his presidency, and you know he's been re-elected again unopposed. But he's got the African bloc vote by putting Patrice Motsepe in charge of CAF. Uh, he's, he's pretty much got the Asian bloc tied up, and that's enough to, to win him the election. But the power still resides with Europe and South America. They're still the big football nations. They're still the big football markets. And if, as has been planned, the Commonwealth nations join UEFA in the Nations League in 2024, if you do have that alliance there, then that suddenly is a very powerful block to which I'm assuming the US and Mexico have the big TV markets outside those two regions, I'm assuming they could very easily be attracted. And they can go away to actually, what do we gain from, from Asian football, from, from African football? We'll have our own World Cup and we'll run it on our lines with you know, gay rights respected, women's rights respected, and, and not exploiting migrant workers. And I think there is a, you, know, you saw that when he backed down on the, the idea of having the World Cup every two years, that actually, if you're away from Common Ball, speak with one voice. They still have the power, even if they don't quite have the votes in FIFA Congress. And I think it's a really dangerous game Infantino's playing, particularly that goading of Europe on, on Saturday. Uh, you know, the ludicrous thing about, you know, Europe has to apologise for 3,000 years, for 3,000 years of crimes. Well, you yeah, know, of course Europe should acknowledge it, it, its faults in the past. But the idea that you can't point out that it's not acceptable for migrant workers to be working 16 hours a day in 40-degree heat because Alexander the Great invaded Persia is, is you know, just nonsense.
2: Jonathan, great stuff as ever. We leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers. OTB AM with Gillette in association with Movember. Effortless shave, magnificent mode.